Hello and welcome to The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Aoife Barry, standing in for Sinead O'Carroll, and this week we're looking at what you need to know about the coronavirus, COVID-19. When we sat down to record this episode of The Explainer this morning, that's Thursday morning, there were no confirmed cases of COVID-19 on the island of Ireland. But we're sitting down now to record again on Thursday evening as that situation has changed. We now know that the first case of coronavirus, COVID-19, has been confirmed in Northern Ireland. We don't have many details yet, but what we do know is that the patient involved travelled from Italy to Northern Ireland through Dublin. We don't have a lot of details on this developing story right now, so do keep checking the journal.ie where you will get all of the latest updates that we have. So just to note that the discussions on the rest of this podcast were recorded before the news broke about that diagnosis of COVID-19 in Northern Ireland. So for this week's episode, what we want to do is cut through the scaremongering and answer the most common questions you probably have about coronavirus and COVID-19 and everything associated with it in a very practical and factual way. So to help us with that in the studio with me today, I have a familiar voice to any regular Explainer listeners. That's noteworthy investigative reporter and font of science reporting knowledge, Maria Delaney. And speaking of fonts of scientific knowledge, joining us for the first time in the podcast is Dr. Kim Roberts, who is Assistant Professor of Virology at Trinity College Dublin. So we're going to take a good look on this podcast about how Ireland is dealing with COVID-19. And this is, as you know, a very rapidly evolving situation. And before I get to Maria and Kim, I'm just going to bring the listeners a bit back up to speed with some of the very basic questions that you might have about COVID-19 and the coronavirus. So our reporters, Nikki Ryan of this very podcast and Gronin EA went along to a press briefing on Wednesday this week about the coronavirus COVID-19, which was held by the Department of Health. And while they were there, they spoke to Killian de Gascoon, who is the chairman of the Department of Health's Coronavirus Expert Advisory Group. So they asked him a few questions and they started off by asking him, what is the coronavirus COVID-19? And here is what he had to say. So COVID-19 is the name of the disease that is caused by SARS coronavirus 2, which is the novel coronavirus that emerged in China just at the end of 2019. It's a respiratory virus, so the symptoms involve shortness of breath, fever, cough, maybe sneezing, and difficulty breathing. They're the type of things that we're looking out for. You might also be wondering what makes this COVID-19, which is a disease caused by the coronavirus, which is SARS-CoV-2. We're going to stick with COVID-19 and we're talking about the diseases caused by the virus in the podcast today. But you might be wondering about what what makes this COVID-19 different to the the flu, like the ordinary flu that we're used to. So here is what Killian de Gascoon had to say about that. A lot of respiratory viruses cause similar symptoms, but the viruses themselves come from different virus families. So although they're both RNA viruses, the coronaviruses that we're used to, we have about four regular seasonal coronaviruses, and they typically cause a common cold. Coronaviruses came to attention, I suppose, in 2002, 2003, when SARS emerged. And it was really at that point that we realized that coronaviruses could cause more severe disease. So when we compare influenza and the new coronavirus, really what we're looking at, we're looking at transmissibility and we're looking at severity of illness. So from a severity perspective, based on the cases that have been reported to date, it seems that the case fatality rate for the novel coronavirus is more severe, is greater than that for seasonal influenza. Now, 
it's possible that the ultimate infection fatality rate will be lower, but at the moment of the laboratory confirmed cases, the case fatality rate is about 2%, which is about 20 times higher than what we would see for seasonal influenza. We're back in studio now with Maria and Kim. We have so much that we can get into all about COVID-19, but let's start with the word pandemic, which I'm sure people are hearing a lot about. Kim, is it currently a pandemic situation now? And if it isn't, if it does become a pandemic, what does that mean for Ireland? Okay, so pandemic simply means that there's a global spread of the virus, that it's infected people in many countries in several continents. At the moment, the WHO has been reluctant to call the situation a pandemic, but I think increasingly we are describing the situation that we are on the cusp of a pandemic Mm -hmm. and that a pandemic is likely. And if it does, say say tomorrow, the WHO turns around and says this is a pandemic, does that mean that that COVID-19 is worse than anything else? Is it to do with the strength of COVID-19? You said it's about the amount of continents yeah. it's spread to. The word pandemic doesn't give you any information about the severity of the disease, about um, how the virus spreads or anything like that. All pandemic means is that lots of countries now have cases of this virus. And do we know what that means then for Ireland? Like, is there particular protocols we have to put into place if a pandemic is is named tomorrow by the WHO? So the WHO have already called the situation um, a public health emergency of international concern. And so that triggered uh, the collection of funds, for example, um, for the distribution of testing kits. So politically, whether or not we need to call the situation a pandemic is sort of up in the air, but it can be a useful term for just just helping people understand that this virus is moving out of the containment phase. Countries are not being able to contain it within small clusters and more and more countries are being affected. Maria, let's get to those numbers. So we know they're rapidly changing. So by the time some people are listening to this, the numbers will be different. But what countries are are affected and do we have a number for how many people have been diagnosed with COVID-19 overall globally? So at the time of recording, as you were saying, um, over 82,000 cases Um, have been um, reported worldwide and that's across 49 countries and territories kind of spread across uh, like uh, most continents at this stage and um, there are now more cases being reported outside China actually than from it that kind that just happened this week Um, and yeah so there is a huge amount of countries and a lot of European countries are affected as well. But that doesn't mean we need to panic now. And that's something when I was speaking to you during the week that you kind of had this mantra of prepare don't panic. Absolutely. It's really important that we think about our actions and that we all take responsibility for looking after each other, but also how we engage with the health services. The HSE is providing some fantastic guidelines. Um, There's lots of information if you do develop symptoms. Getting hold of those guidelines and thinking about it now is a great way of preparing and a great way of getting your mind in that right place so that we can prepare and not panic. So we heard Killian de Gascon earlier say that the mortality rate for COVID-19 at the moment is around about um, 2%. But when it comes to how people are affected, how badly some people are affected by it compared to others, do we have a sense of are there more groups, certain groups that are more affected, certain groups that are less at risk? Do you have that info at this point? It is rapidly changing, but what do we know, Kim? It is rapidly changing. And um, as more people become infected, the numbers are going to change. But as it currently stands, it's thought that about 80% of people who develop 
the disease will have a mild to moderate um, illness. So that'll mean that they'll have flu-like symptoms for about a week, maybe two weeks. It might, it'll take the, the majority of people about two weeks to recover. Then the other 20% of people are people who are at risk of developing um, more serious symptoms and potential complications. Most of those people have additional underlying health problems. So whether those are um, heart disease, um, asthma, diabetes, um, those sorts of people may be at risk of a more severe infection. That can then last for longer. So the recovery time for those groups of people can be more like three to six weeks. Again, it's similar sort of flu-like symptoms, but instead of clearing after about seven days, it carries on and potentially gets worse. Um, it's thought that the number of critical cases um, and severe cases is about 5%. And there's a difference. It's, it's looking like there is a, a difference in, in the groups of people being affected so that um, younger people are less likely to develop a, a severe infection and you're more likely to develop a severe infection if you're um, over 50, over 60 and with um, one or more underlying health conditions as well. So someone might be listening to this podcast and they might think, well, you know, I'm 27 years old and I'm in the full of my health. So if I got coronavirus, few, few like symptoms, sure, look, I'll be grand. But it's not really about you, is it? Because we don't have a vaccination. That means that you could spread that to those at risk groups that you're talking about there. Absolutely. The most important thing that we can do as a society is slow down the transmission of the virus. If the virus comes here in large numbers, which we expect it will, what we don't want to happen is that there's lots of transmission and we get a big peak of, um, of, of cases very early on, which will put too much strain on health services. It's much better that we all take responsibility for protecting each other and safeguarding ourselves and limit the spread as much as possible to slow down that curve and help the health services um, cope with the people who really need their, their extra support. So ways of slowing down the infection, if you're sick, stay at home. Um, obviously, ways of protecting yourself. We're hearing an awful lot about hand washing. Hand washing is really important. One of the routes of transmission for this virus is the virus gets onto your fingertips and then you touch your mouth, you touch your nose, you touch your eyes. So getting into good habits now whilst we can prepare for new cases coming into Ireland, um, we can think about reducing the amount of times we touch our face. We can think about increasing how often we wash our hands. And when we talk about washing hands, whether it's soap and water or an alcohol sanitizer, the mechanical action is just as important as the solution that you put on. So you want to be scrubbing your hands for at least 20 seconds. That's the time it takes to sing the happy birthday song in your head <laughs> twice, slowly. It's a good reminder. So you want to be doing that and rubbing them the ends of each of your fingers. Those things can have a big impact on slowing down the virus. Other ways that we can get into habits now are um, when you're going to go visit a friend, call ahead, check that they're, they're well and that they want you to come and visit and that you're 
well as well to go visit. Set up buddy systems with neighbours, with relatives, particularly anyone who lives alone, so that not only have they got support if they get ill, but if they're feeling worried and concerned because this situation is different for people, it is frightening, then you've got people that you can talk to um, to calm the situation down. And those sound like very practical tips in terms of they sound less about scaremongering, more like, well, it'll also protect you from any other colds and flus that might be flying around about the place. And I suppose thinking about those who are more vulnerable in society as, w- as well as ourselves, which which ties into really the decision that was made um, during the week where the IRFU agreed to that Department of Health request, Maria, about cancelling those three Ireland versus Italy games. Italy obviously getting into the news because of the high number of COVID-19 cases that were diagnosed very recently. Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of reasoning behind that that they gave at the time, the Department of Health? Yeah, so it's it's mainly being cancelled to prevent the spread of uh, the disease to Ireland. Um, since many Italians were expected to travel to the game. Like at the time of recording, um, there are 400 cases in Italy and 12 people have died there. So obviously um, the Department of Health were hoping to limit that spread. So we've got St. Patrick's Day coming around the corner, which is a very big day for Ireland and not just Ireland. I mean, other countries around the world are celebrating on our behalf as well. Do we know about the St. Patrick's Day celebrations here? Like are they under threat of being cancelled at all? Have the organisers said... Um, So there's no statement as yet, um, but the government is currently considering whether the parade and other festivities will go ahead Um, around the world. Then like Hong Kong, the annual St. Patrick's Society Ball um, has been cancelled already. And then events in other parts of the world that are affected by the virus, such as Italy and Japan, are up in the air, but they're not cancelled yet. And the parade in London is going ahead as planned. But again, we don't know um, what might happen. Um, I suppose just one thing that happened this week, the National Public Health Emergency Team, which is part of the Department of Health, recommended the establishment of an expert group to develop kind of criteria, kind of a risk assessment of other mass gatherings that might be happening in the next while. So we'll probably have more kind of guidelines around that soon. Yeah, and that again is something that it seems like, you know, they're very much thinking ahead, but not thinking too far ahead because it's kind to, uh, it's kind of difficult to know exactly what's happening day to day with this particular situation, isn't it? Um, now, what's the Department of Health saying in terms of the preparedness of Ireland, right? Because you just mentioned some of the, the kind of moves there, but is, are there other things we need to know about that are happening maybe behind the scenes to make sure Ireland can deal with anything that's happening coronavirus wise? Well, I suppose the first thing is um, they're kind of looking at the risk of it coming here and um, the main people who do this are the European Centre of Disease Control and they've kind of they've increased the risk now after the Italian outbreak um, and then the, as I mentioned there before the National Public Health Emergency Team so that's kind of the main team that's involved in preparedness and they are having regular meetings at the moment kind of to evaluate new developments in the virus, perhaps new outbreaks like what happened in Italy recently and see how prepared Ireland is. And then if they see gaps, they put recommendations in, such as this week recommending that the Italy match shouldn't go ahead and also recommending things like improved um, posters and things like that in airports and ports and public spaces. And I suppose otherwise the government 
the Department of Foreign Affairs are of, of meeting to kind of issue travel guidelines for places like China or other places affected by the outbreak. And what about the hospitals then? Because that's something people are going to ask. Are hospitals prepared? Are GPs prepared? There is advice that's been given by Simon Harris, um, the Minister for Health, you know, in terms of staying at home, ringing your GP rather than getting everybody into the GP if they think they might be at risk. But do we know, maybe Marie, I'll start with you, how prepared hospitals and GPs are for a potential um, greater situation with coronavirus here? Well, as Kim said, we've had a few weeks now, thanks to kind of China's um, actions on the coronavirus or on COVID-19 um, to prepare for it. But like, I suppose people are concerned with the current overcrowding, like you're already you're putting an already overloaded system under a lot of pressure if we do have an outbreak here. Um, one worrying development is, as Kim said, 5% of people become critically ill with uh, COVID-19. And that means respiratory failure, septic shock, multiple organ failure. And they've done some studies on this already. And they found that um, a lot of these, this category of people need um, intensive care treatment, um, which requires ventilation. And some people actually require up to four weeks on a ventilator. And this would put huge pressure on our ICUs with our intensive care units and our high dependency units. And even do we even have enough ventilators kind of thing? So um, I suppose um, they will be preparing for that. And there are preparation plans in place, Mm -hmm. such as isolation facilities and things. But um, I suppose there are worrying developments coming out of China and the pressure on intensive care units as well. And in terms of GPs, then in terms of preparedness, um, they've been sent kits um, which have things like masks and gloves. And it's also a notifiable disease now. So if um, if someone's tested positive for it, they have to, the authorities have to be notified. Kim, what's the treatment for COVID-19? So we don't have a vaccine. So there isn't anything that we can take in advance um, to protect us and there isn't any specific antiviral drugs available. So the way that people are treated is their symptoms are managed. So, for example, um, reducing a fever. But there aren't any specific antiviral drugs for, um, for for treating this disease. So are you talking there about you know things like paracetamol or maybe if people are in hospital being put on a drip with paracetamol or those kind of things? So it's not any... Absolutely. There isn't a specific drug that will stop the virus from replicating inside of us, but there are ways that the symptoms can be controlled and managed. When might we see a vaccine for COVID-19 or some of the antiviral drugs that you mentioned there? So um, there are lots of groups around the world who are working really hard on trying to develop a vaccine. But unlike influenza, we don't have a tried and tested vaccine that we can adapt and use. So it's something that really is being developed from scratch. That takes time. So we can't expect a vaccine to appear Um, in the next few weeks, we're actually talking more like years. I think it's worth just bearing that time frame in mind. Similarly, there are antiviral drugs that um, groups are looking to repurpose and see whether or not things that we have available might have an effect um, on the virus. But again, a lot of testing needs to be done to make sure that it's safe and effective. So it's not around the corner. Now, I know I'm not the only one who has a holiday coming up soon, right? And very lucky to have that, but who's also wondering, like, what does this mean? What do I do? Do I cancel the holiday? What, like, what is going on, I think, um, is the question that a lot of people who have some sort of travel, you know, coming up, particularly in March, I think it seems to be like the, the time people are most concerned about. So let's start with the actual government advice that's out there. Maria, what is the government saying about travelling out of Ireland or even into, into Ireland at this point in time? 
Well, they've um, issued certain advice for just particular areas. So there isn't any advice for Ireland or anything like that um, within Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, for China, they're advising to avoid all non-essential travel and not to travel to the province at the centre of the outbreak. And for Italy, they're advising people not to travel to the towns which have been isolated by the Italian government in northern Italy. Um, again, like before you travel, check this because it'll be updated. Um, for South Korea, they're recommending only essential travel travel to areas experience an outbreak there and Simon Harris recently said that he expected that the Department of Foreign Affairs would in time issue guidelines to avoid unnecessary travel to other affected areas including Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, Iran and other affected parts of Northern Italy. And you can get all of that information in terms of the details on on those specific countries if you go to the Department of Foreign Affairs website as well. It's very kind of comprehensive information there. Do we know, though, say I'm supposed to be going to Italy next month and I decide I'm going to cancel the holiday with the current travel bans or should I say lack of travel bans that are in place? Will you get a refund if there is no travel ban and you just decide I'm not going to go because of the threat of the COVID-19? So at the moment, unless your flight is cancelled by the airline, um, you're not entitled to a refund. You're obviously, as usual, if you cancel a flight, you can get the taxes and other charges back. Um, um, it all depends on like who you booked with and that kind of thing. So if you're if you have a hotel, often you can cancel up to 24 hours before, depending on the site, like booking.com and things like that. So um, that would obviously still be in pace. And often if if you are staying in a hotel, perhaps in an outbreak area, um, it's obviously up to the discretion of the hotel. But oftentimes um, they are quite good and might give you either a voucher or a refund. So it's kind of. There isn't really any set guidelines at the moment. If you booked through a travel agency or something like that and you're staying in an area that has an outbreak and it is a public health concern um, for you to go there, well, then that's a bit different and you will probably most likely get a refund. But it's all a bit up in the air at the moment. Are there any flights from certain countries coming into Ireland that have been banned? Um, well, actually, um, at the moment, no, like we didn't have any flights from China. So um, a lot of flights uh, to, to and from mainland China have been stopped by the airlines rather than like banned by Pacific countries. Um, and most airlines have suspended flights uh, to mainland China until the end of March. Um, some, in fact, have extended their ban till the end of June, uh, which is quite a long time. Um, and Simon Harris has said that stopping flights from Italy and uh, where the outbreak is at the moment wouldn't work as connected flights would make travel possible anyway and we do have free travel within Europe so um, I think things like banning flights or banning movement would be quite hard in that way. Um, There are protocols for passengers presenting with acute um, respiratory infection on an inbound flight into Ireland and these have been used in recent weeks and some flights to Iran as well another outbreak there have been cancelled and many land bordered crossings have been closed but again um, not necessarily from Ireland but just flights to Iran if you were connecting from somewhere else. And what about then ports and airports in terms of any restrictions around those two particular areas? So there isn't any restrictions at the moment or screening or anything like that and um, Simon Harris and also um, the, the Department of Health has said there isn't 
any point in implementing screening at the moment and it isn't really that effective because passengers might have no symptoms and still have um, COVID-19 because um, it takes up to 14 days to have symptoms. So at the moment, no, there isn't any screening. There is screening in certain other areas like um, in the United States, flights from China um, are currently um, passengers are screened with maybe temperature checks and they're thinking of extending that to other outbreak areas as well, but not in Ireland at the moment. So at the moment, it's more of a poster campaign, information campaign, letting people know when they do travel, what to keep an eye out for. Kim, if you are on holidays and you realise you've been on holidays in an affected area and you arrive back in Ireland, what should you do? So um, the HSE is rolling out some some fantastic information. Um, so their website is a great place to go. But um, there's sort of two paths. If you don't have any symptoms, then um, go to the website and look at their guidelines. Make sure that you're aware of what the symptoms are. And um, you may decide because you feel that you have been exposed to the virus that you self-quarantine yourself for up to 14 days to make sure that you don't develop um, symptoms. Then the other stream is for people who do think that they're developing symptoms. So they have a fever, they've got a cough, for example. For those people... Um, they're being asked to call their GP. Don't turn up at your GP surgery, but phone ahead and explain that you've been in an at-risk area and you're showing some symptoms and then they will follow their protocols um, to see if you need to get tested. And some people might be kind of wondering, okay, I've been on holiday somewhere in Italy, but not one of the areas that I'm being told is a particularly badly affected area that's been you know, mentioned on the news and that there's warnings around, but I've been in the country. Should they still follow the same protocol that you've mentioned there? At the moment, um, we are beginning to see cases uh, or other countries are beginning to see um uh, cases of, of the disease where there isn't a direct link to a specific infected area. So that might suggest that we are getting wider transmission. So if you start developing symptoms, a fever, a cough, maybe shortness of breath, call your GP and ask for advice. And I suppose that would go the same then for parents who have children who might have been on a skiing trip abroad, which we've seen a lot of reports about recently. Uh, Kids who are in their teens and are away for a while, a nice holiday, realise they're in a hot spot for COVID-19. They come back. If their parents are worried, follow the same guidelines that you mentioned there. Absolutely. And if you've been to an area, the responsible thing is to self-quarantine, self-isolate yourself for up to two weeks. And back to that um, preparing, not panicking idea. Now is a really good time to talk to your employer about what their policy is if you need to self-isolate yourself. Can you work from home for a week, two weeks, waiting for symptoms to develop? Or is that not possible in your job? Now is a really good time to have those conversations. So that is a big thing, isn't it? Because if we're being told, you know, don't go into the office, don't infect people, be responsible. It's a very good thing for people to be doing. That means for some people, they can work at home. For some people, they absolutely can't do any work at all. They might be in a caring profession, for example, working with children. Maria, what's the the advice, the guidelines out there at the moment for people when it comes to self-isolation or staying at home, not working, working? and COVID-19. Well, earlier this week, um, employment law specialist Richard Grogan said on Today with Shorna Rourke that employers are not obliged to pay employees who decide to stay at home as a safety precaution. So that's kind of self-isolating 
um, probably without symptoms. And probably without working, I presume if they're not at home on the laptop to yeah. work, we're talking about people who aren't working. Yeah, like day. I presume yeah. if anyone who works from home, like they're going to get paid. Yeah. Like they're kind of carrying on as usual, but obviously not in their office. But obviously um, people are saying that if, pe- if people are concerned, employers should listen to them and ask them why they are concerned and try and establish, well, where maybe they did actually come in contact with someone and they should bring their GP and that kind of thing. So it kind of depends on case to case. Um, if law firm A&L Goodbody also issued some guidance on this, saying employees who are quarantined due to concerns that they may have contracted the virus, so that's usually people with symptoms, will need to be assessed on a case-by-case basis as to whether, um, how should they work at home or will they get paid? And it all is kind of at the discretion of the employer, as far as I could tell. Um, and if an employee falls ill with coronavirus, so if they are diagnosed with COVID-19, an employer should apply its sick leave policy according to a good body which may or not may or may not provide paid sick leave um they so it all kind of depends on um the employer and also maybe what entitlements they have like for their um PAYE and stuff like that and from your professional point of view um kim when it comes to companies perhaps seeing there is a bit of a risk they might have an employee who was in china for example and is coming back to ireland you know, making that decision whether to close the company, to send everybody home for the week or the day or whatever. Is that a very practical decision to make? Is it the right decision to make given how viruses spread? I think it's certainly something that companies, um, businesses, schools should consider and think through the risk. If you have employees who have been to infected areas, getting them to self-isolate and stay at home is not only going to... Um, prevent those people from spreading the virus within the communities, but also within your office. So that's actually a good thing to try and slow down so that more people can keep on working for as long as possible. So um, getting allowing people to work from home if possible, encouraging people to self-isolate if they have been exposed. Um, it's a it's a sensible precaution. So those words, self-isolate, I've never heard that phrase in my life until this week. And now it's a, it's a phrase we all feel very familiar with over the last couple of days. But we've mentioned it a few times there, but we haven't actually really said, like, what is self-isolation? What are the practical nuts and bolts of if you have to self-isolate? Kim, what, what do you do? Self-isolation is you stay at home and you avoid as many people as possible. So this might be, you might be feeling fine, but you're waiting for that up to two weeks before symptoms might develop. So um, we don't know if people without symptoms can be shedding the virus, can be transmitting to other people. So in terms of self-isolation, it's about um, being cautious and trying to prevent transmission of the virus. So what does that mean? It means staying at home. It means not inviting people into your home, limiting the people who you come into contact with. It means um, increasing washing your hands. The HSE guidelines, um, particularly for those people who are showing symptoms and are self-isolating, they recommend that if you have a spare bathroom, the the person with symptoms uses a, a, a specific bathroom themselves and people who are well don't go in there. Um, It's about um, disinfecting surfaces, 
um, and washing bedding and towels, for example, at 60 degrees. There's a lot of really detailed information from the HSE that's really good about um, practical steps that you need to take if you are self-isolating. Now, as you say, this is a phrase that when that we've not really used and now we're throwing it around all over yeah. the place. And this idea of having a sick person use a different bathroom, opening windows within your house, especially when it's so cold outside, um, not letting people come into your house, those are really quite frightening steps. Um, and it's understandable that that people might feel uncomfortable with that change in sort of social protocols. Um, but this can have a big impact on slowing down the transmission. There's some good data coming out of China that it would that one of the main reasons why they were able to slow down the transmission of the virus was by having people self-isolate, having people stay within their homes and not going out. Because it is like, you know, the phrase self-isolate, like you said, it's a bit of a scary, weird term. And I'd imagine some people might look at that term or if they're advised to do it themselves and think, this sounds a bit over the top. It sounds a bit apocalyptic. What am I doing? But when you go through the details, it actually sounds like it's quite a practical thing to do, that it isn't a scaremongering thing to do. No, it's a very sensible thing when you understand that the goal is to slow down the transmission of the virus. Because if we can slow down the transmission, we're putting less burden on our overstretched health services. And that's really important. And that could save lives. So it's not just about, it, it might be a bit of an inconvenience for somebody who is, who's been asked to self-isolate, but there's a lot of public responsibility in taking it seriously and just staying at home um, and not going outside. I suppose another measure is that um, people who have been diagnosed with COVID-19 or have a suspected case is actually to wear a face mask. Um, I know that some people are wearing those anyway, but um, the only recommend recommended people who actually should wear them are those with suspected or diagnosed COVID-19. And when we're talking about self-isolation, we're talking about people, you know, like you're saying, being in the house, perhaps with, with, on their own, segregated away from family. And then they might be wondering, should they buy some extra food to prepare in case they might have to self-isolate if someone is listening to it? Should people pick up a few extra packets of things in the shopping at the end of the week, just in case? I think that's a, a sensible part of preparing. Um, non-perishable food that you would eat anyway, um, putting in a, a few extra bits in your in your weekly shop, um, that makes a lot of sense. And maybe if people are on medication to find out from their pharmacy, maybe what their option is there if they're concerned about, you know, being at home for a couple of weeks and not being able to get out to the pharmacist. Absolutely. We have time now to plan and prepare. So have conversations with your pharmacist, with your doctor, if you're worried about running out of medication. I suppose one other point, um, just you do, people do have a support system as well. So in China, people have maybe been dropping groceries on people's doorsteps and things like that. So even if you don't have a huge amount of supply, you can get people just to drop food to you. That's very interesting because in one way, well, it also means you'll know with that person if we stick with that protocol that they will have it, which brings up its own, I suppose, set of questions around that too. But you're basically saying there, don't you? Know, there's no need to walk through Dublin city centre or wherever you live with the mask on at the moment if you don't have any, any symptoms of it. 
So one of our final questions on this, we've talked about self-isolation, but what about isolation in hospitals, Maria? Yeah, so the HFC has a plan in place um, to have isolation facilities available in every hospital should this be required, um, according to Simon Harris. Um, However, given the current shortage of isolation rooms in hospitals, I'd imagine this would put significant pressure on them in the event of an outbreak here. And finally, just so people know and are very clear, what are the guidelines that the Department of Health that the government is giving people around COVID-19 in Ireland around if they're concerned that they may have it, they come back from somewhere, if they need to get in touch with the health services, what are they supposed to do? So you only need to follow advice in relation to COVID-19 if you have been to a country or region with the spread of coronavirus. So basically um, with an outbreak like Italy um, or China, um, being in contact with a person who has had coronavirus or has coronavirus at the moment or been to a healthcare facility where patients with COVID-19 were treated. Um, So it's kind of only those three things. And then if you have symptoms, um, that's when you need to actually contact, uh, like call your GP and ask them what to do or um, basically call a healthcare facility. And then you only need to be tested or self-isolate and self-isolate if you have kind of interacted with one of those things and also have symptoms. So those are the the main guidelines. So if you've been in contact with somebody who has COVID-19 or had it, then you're talking more about the self-isolation and about getting tested yourself for it. But if you just come home from holiday summer and you haven't had any contact with somebody that you know of, but you're a bit concerned, pick up the phone and ring the GP and outline everything with them. And you were saying as well, Kim, the HSC website as well has a ton of information for people there too. I think we've covered a huge amount there, probably answered every question under the sun so far about this rapidly changing situation around COVID-19. If you want to find out more about viruses when you're listening today, if you want to know how they work, what is a coronavirus anyway, check out our previous episode from January of The Explainer. It's called How Worried Should We Be About the Coronavirus in Ireland? Thanks a million, Maria and Kim, for coming into studio today. Thanks for listening to The Explainer and thank you to Maria Delaney and Dr. Kim Roberts for bringing us right up to speed on all things COVID-19. And after you've listened to our previous episode, which will tell you all about where coronaviruses come from, why not check out our live episode of The Explainer, which we recorded at Crow Street in Dublin. And on that episode, we looked at how Ireland gets the politicians it has. We also have recent episodes of the podcast on the Drogheda feud, weather warnings and government formation. And if you're enjoying what you're listening to, we'd love if you rated us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And why not share your favourite episodes with your friends? This episode was produced by me, Aoife Barry, with executive producer Christian Bone and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. See you next week. <laughs>